My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with returning guest Mike Pingleton, and we are going to have a fascinating episode today. Um, as many of you know, um, Mike hosts the So Much Pingle podcast. If you have not heard it, make sure after you listen to this episode to, to get out there and start uh, start listening to, to his podcast as well. It's, it's great. Um, and uh, Mike is a, a you know someone who's really interested in uh, reptiles and amphibians. You know, a, a self-proclaimed field herper that has traveled the world in, in search of adventure and and just finding beauty in nature. You know, through these animals that that we all love. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is a field herping related topic. It's been a, it's been a little while since we've done a field herping episode and I've been wanting to do that again. And, you know, I've been thinking for a long time, I've wanted to do a real place-based field herping episode where we kind of dive in depth about a, a particular location. But as many of you know, I'm a very avid outdoorsman, uh, you know, into hunting and angling. And in that world, we have, uh, we have something called spot burning, meaning you know, you tell somebody your your favorite fishing hole and, you know, or you talk about it on a podcast or write about it in a magazine. And then, you know, the next year you go there and there's a line uh, of people trying to catch your fish. So, um, so I was, the reason I was thinking about it so much is because I really didn't want to spot burn. I didn't want to pick um, a really amazing place uh, that, you know, just put it on the map and brought a lot of people there. So we purposefully uh, selected, uh, you know, a place, uh, to talk about that is, you know, arguably one of the best known places, both in the field herping community, um, and beyond. So we're not giving away, uh, any secrets here, but we're going to have the freedom to, to really talk in depth about this place and the animals and the history and, um, you know, kind of the regulations around it. So, so I'm really excited. Um, and today we are going to talk about the uh, famous Snake Road in Southern Illinois. Mike, welcome to the podcast again. Thanks. It's uh, good to be back with you. Yeah, great. Great to have you. And, and you're just uh, returning from... Um, quite an adventure abroad, it sounds like. And we will, um, assuming we'll have some time at the end of this episode, I'd love to, to chat about that a little bit as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I don't think we need to, well, to start off, I don't think we need to go through in depth kind of who you are and, and you know, kind of your upbringing. And, you know, we've talked about that on, on the previous episode. But why don't we just give people like the highest, you know, 30,000 foot level um, on who you are, you know, where you're based and, and kind of your interest in reptiles and amphibians and, and, you know, how that kind of manifests itself. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I have been, uh, doing this for 50 plus years, 51 and 52 years now. Uh, started when I was just, a uh, 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 tweener almost. And, uh, uh, just, you know, the backyard snake thing, uh, like so many people. Got started that way. I have been interested in it my in my whole life in amphibians and reptiles. I have been actively field herping uh, for nearly all of those uh, fifty plus years, uh, more intensely starting in the nineties. Uh, I don't know what else I can say. I, uh, I've been a big uh, uh, proponent of it. I, I've uh, written about it. I've talked about field herping. Um, I've uh, shared countless photos <laughs> regarding field herping. Uh, you know, started international traveling, uh, about a decade ago or uh, 13 years ago now. Uh, and, um, 
you know, I, I just uh, I've seen it gum. I've seen field tripping go from a uh, a niche, uh, quote unquote, hobby uh, that uh, was a you know the the realm of a, a few weirdos to uh, something that is uh, uh, practiced as a recreational activity by tens of thousands of people. So I've been along for the entire ride. Yeah, that's, that's great. That? Yeah, that's great. We may talk about, there's time at the end, we may talk a little bit about that too, the broader picture of, you know, the changing community of field herpers and, you know, some of the important, you know, factors around that. But um, yeah, well, tell us a little bit, um, not to go too much in depth into the snake road, but tell us a little bit about your history. So you've been field herping for, you, like you said, over 50 years and you live in the Midwest. And um, so what's kind of your history with this specific location? Have you been going there for 10 years, 20 years? Yeah. yeah well, I, um, we, it goes back to the fall of 1977. Uh, and I was taking a class called Swamp Ecology. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the highlight of that class was a trip to Okefenokee Swamp in March of 1978. But uh, that, uh, that fall, uh, the class, uh, we took a, a shorter field trip to Snake Road. And I had heard some things about it, but I didn't know anything about it. So we went there. It was October. Uh, it, it was the temperature was in the upper 40s. Uh, the class, you know, we we debus and start walking down the road and start finding, you know, cotton mouths and green water snakes and, and uh, rough green snakes and things like that. And it, it it was it wasn't lost on me that the temperature was not the the comfort temperature for those animals. It was cold. Uh, it was cold and cloudy, but these these snakes were moving uh, because they were you know under this imperative to get to their winter quarters. Uh, and so that kind of that that set the hook and that set the hook firmly for me. Uh, it, it was just an amazing thing for me to think about that that there's some process, there's some bigger thing going on than just encountering a snake somewhere. Um, the, the, uh, so that 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 kind of set it for me. And then uh, I had made return trips there uh, over the years. And then starting in the mid 90s, when I really decided to become a, uh, I don't know, a real field herper or a, a, a serious field herper, I guess. Uh, uh, starting in 1994, I made multiple trips down every year. So I haven't missed a year since 1994. Uh, and uh, probably go down between three and four times a year, um, usually in the fall and sometimes a, a trip or two in the spring. So That's great. So uh, you, are, my involvement. you are arguably the most experienced field herper, you know, in terms of time that, you know, Snake Road has seen. I mean, there may be some others that are similar to you, but sounds like it'd be pretty hard to match that. Um, yeah. And when you look at it from over time, yeah, there's not a, there's not a lot of us who have done that steady, that steady uh, pilgrimage for that period of time. Now, we're, I guess we're coming up here on, on my gosh, almost 30 years of, uh, of trips down there. So yeah, over, if you think about it over time, I've been able to, to witness some changes in, in the road and herpa, the herpetofauna and, and, you know, who comes to see yeah. that kind of thing. Well, those are all things that I want to get to, but before we go there, I would, uh, like to talk a little bit about the setting. You talked about moving to their winter quarters um, so just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, about the road, uh, and then about kind of that landscape surrounding the road and, and what about that landscape makes it such a special place from a snake perspective. Sure. Um, well, to start off, we have to, we have to talk about the glacier, the glacier that never made it that far. Uh, so most of Illinois, uh, as many people know, has undergone several glaciations. You know, ice comes down, covers the land, grinds it flat, uh, so on and so forth. But uh, uh, the very southern part of the state is avoided being covered in ice. So you have a, a, a landscape with hills and you know some topography to it other than just, you know, flat. Uh, and you, you have uh, some influences from uh over to the west, what they call the what the Ozark uh, Ozark uplift or or something Ozark plateau, I think they call it. So it's a different environment from the rest of Illinois, which is kind of like corn and wheat and, and soybeans. Uh, 
So what you have down there, if you zoom in now on Snake Row, what you have is a large area of bottomland swamp about four miles east of the Mississippi. And the bottomland swamp abuts a limestone escarpment, a series of limestone bluffs that run north-south uh, for quite a, quite a few miles. And the, the limestone bluffs are, at their tallest, they're about 300 feet tall. So you have the situation where you have, they have this great big swamp where you have you know, an, an incredible array of herpetofauna that exists there. And then the, 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 the serpents have to hibernate. So they come out of the swamp and go for the bluffs and, you know, crawl into the cracks and crevices. And, and uh, what makes what makes it special is that at the base of the bluffs is Forest Road 345, which runs along the base of, of, of those bluffs. So you have this those road. It's a gravel road. It serves as a stage. You walk down the road and the snakes cross the road and, you know. Uh, you can see uh, quite a few snakes that way. And, well, of course, there's other herpetofauna there too. But uh, but that makes it a unique place because it just sort of serves up all of these uh, all these snakes for you uh, just by simply taking a nice hike on a, a warm and sunny October afternoon. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it does sound like a, a you know, perfect setup for that. So uh, it's a Forest Service road, uh, but um, – how come I'm saying this with a little tone of my voice because I know the answer, but how come, how come this road, uh, isn't just covered, uh, in dead snakes in October? I mean, um, <laughs> if we have so many animals crossing, uh, you know, what's kind of some of the history there that's, that's helped protect these migration corridors. Sure. Well, this area is, is it abuts the Shawnee national forest which is a, you know, a very large entity and we're grateful that we have this uh, resource in Southern Illinois, but uh, it abuts this, the Shawnee National Forest. And in 1970, the U.S. Forest Service uh, was, you know, very aware, aware of the road mortality in the fall along this, along this uh, forest road. So they decided to, um, number one, they, the first thing they did is they declared this area an, an ecological area which prohibits uh, the collection of, of plants and animals or, or harassment for that matter. Uh, and then the second thing they did was put a gate on each end of the road uh, to close the road. And the road is closed. I think the dates are September 1st to October 31st. I think we're still holding with those gates, those dates. And then the, in the spring we have, uh, I think April 1st to the end of May, the, the gate, the road is closed as well. So it's just a gate. That prohibits uh, prohibits uh, vehicular traffic. Uh, uh, you're not allowed to bring mountain bikes or motorcycles or anything like that in there either. So it's just a, a it's all foot traffic for that for that time period. Uh, so that was a great thing to have happen uh, back in 1970. Uh, and then uh, later, I think 1991, uh, the area was described was was uh, recategorized as a research natural area. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the research natural area. Now. There's RNAs all over the country, but these are are places that are considered to be ecologically significant or ecologically rich. And so, nothing. There's no logging in there. There's no uh, development of any kind. They're left as is, and they become a an interesting or uh, useful places for ec ecological research and and just to, to maintain some. Uh, high quality ecosystems, and that that that's what happened uh, in 1991. So that further gave the area some protection. So you have a uh, the, the snakes are protected by the road closures, and then the overall area and the overall herpetofauna, uh, or in fauna and flora in general, are protected by uh, being included in this uh, research natural area. Uh, okay. So you mentioned. It sounds like, well, first of all, you're talking about a migration event between wetlands and bluffs. And um, so, and then you mentioned a seasonality to the, to the closing. So I'm assuming um, there's, there's kind of a, a spring fall pulse of, of movement uh, with animals. Is that, is that true? And is that how you kind of yeah. time your trips to the region? Yeah, the road closures are are timed to the to that pulse, and so of uh, the you know uh, every 
you know, I always tell people say, well, when are you going to be there? Well, I, I always go down like the first week or first weekend of October and, and then maybe two more times as the, as the month pro- progresses. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, you, know, when you get that first frost in the area um, that kind of drives things as well, or you get a cold uh, October rain that that'll move stuff, start stuff to move. Uh, so there's, there's definitely in the fall, it, it seems to be uh, different from this, what we would call the spring pulse in the fall. Uh, they've, they've got to move. Even if it's raining and 50 degrees, you'll see snakes moving, uh, you know, uh, east towards the, the, the limestone bluffs. In the spring, the uh, weather is a lot more fickle as, as you, you know, it's, uh, you may have a warm stretch of three or four days and then uh, a cold snap. And then, you know, the, the uh, herps may just sit and wait for warmer weather. They don't necessarily come out as in mass the way they go in in mass. So there is definitely a difference there. Yeah. So you have a, a more pronounced big pulse in the fall, but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe easier to miss it in the fall if you don't catch it right. I'm assuming if you get more of a slow trickle in the spring, would you say that's accurate? Um, I mean, if you, if you go down there in late October, you won't see as many. You'll still see some some snakes are active. Gotcha. Uh, and I, I guess the other thing with with this is is that uh, the snakes come out of the swamp. They go in the up in the bluffs. They find the crack that they've used uh, in either a new place or the place they've used for their whole life to uh, every every fall to uh, to spend the winter. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Once they're in, you know, once they go into the bluff, that they don't come out because, uh, you know, a warm three or four days will bring them out and they'll come out and they'll bask and they may actually, uh, you know, forage along the base of the bluffs for food and that kind of thing. So there's still some activity there. So uh, it, it's not like you if you don't get down there on the right day, you'll miss it. Uh, it's not like the swallows returning the Capistrano or something like that. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it's a, a, a more of a, a long a, a long, steady pulse, if you will. Okay. Uh, but you know, the best day to be down there is on a warm, uh, uh, warm, sunny afternoon in October. That's that's your best bet. Yeah, taking uh, some fall foliage and see some animals. Yeah. And yeah. Um, well, so the, going, going back to that, the history part you were talking about, um, it's fascinating to me that back in the 1970s, that the Forest Service would close a road for snakes and other herpetofauna. Um, do you know, I mean, do you have any insight on that? Was it actually more of like a human health concern? Were they truly concerned with, you know, some of these species like cotton mouse? Like, uh, it's just kind of surprising to me that, you know, 50 years ago or more now, uh, 50 years, I guess, uh, that, you know, they would close a road for snakes. Uh, that, that's a good point because prior to that, uh, ever since people have been living in the area, uh, you know, snakes were, were persecuted, right? And there are records of – there are snake dens all up and down this this area besides Snake Road. And, uh, you know, there are newspaper accounts back from the turn of the uh, – well, the turn of the – in the 1900s, early 1900s, as, as late as 1940s, of snake killing parties. You go on a picnic and – uh, you know, do your civic duty to uh, blow away some snakes. So you had that, but up in, in the seventies, I suspect, and I don't know, I haven't really researched this uh, uh, in detail, but I suspect that there are one or two principal architects behind this that that saw this carnage on the road and said, "We got to stop this." Uh, you know, I don't. It may not have been the local. Uh, the guy at the local ranger station. It might have been somebody doing uh, work for the Illinois Natural History Survey. It might have been Phil Smith. I don't really, really know. But I think somebody with uh, an eye towards uh, conservation and an eye towards herpet fawn in general probably was behind this. That's my guess. So uh, that's probably some something I should look into if I ever decide to uh, write a book or something. So. Yeah, that would be great. You should write a book on this topic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, just curious to to you know share with the audience some of the other 
maybe like if people are planning on going, like more like restrictions. And we'll talk about maybe more about some ethics, um, you know, decisions we might make independent of regulations later. But um, so you go there and you're walking this stretch of road. Um, are Do you need to stay on the road or are people going down to the swamp and up to the bluffs? Or is this a type of activity where you get on the road and you're essentially walking the road back and forth? Um, Well, that's a very, that's a very good question. Uh, And it kind of, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, You, uh, I typically stick to the road, uh, but you're always going to have people who are going to want to climb up in the bluffs and, and, uh, and go down into the swamps. And, uh, I think, I think that's probably fine as long as you're, uh, aware that you're in a research natural area and you cannot destroy, harass, or, or collect any flora and fauna. So you just can't run roughshod over any plants. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, you can't destroy habitats. So that's something to keep in mind there too. Yeah. People shouldn't uh, be rolling rocks and, you know, destroying right. you know, features on the bluff. Right. And yeah, I could see that being an right. issue. Um, yeah. And I, I should preface all this by saying that I think we're incredibly lucky. We, as the herping community that we even get to come to this place. <laughs> I'm just amazed that they still allow us to do this. To, to witness this because they could just just shut the thing down and say sorry folks uh, so it's it, to me it, it is, I'm very protective of what we have and this this gift we have down in there uh, of uh, being able to just to walk along a road and you know see a cotton mouth or whatever it is uh, so um, yeah so you can you don't need to be some sort of athletic uh, a uh, person who's you know goes up into the into the high rocks or or wades into the swamps, you can just simply walk the road, and uh, the, you will see uh, you'll see stuff on the road. You'll see uh, any number of snakes. Uh, there's lots of frogs down there. You'll see sometimes you'll see snapping turtles on the road. You'll see all kinds of interesting uh, creatures just by staying on the road. Uh, and it's kind of hard for me to describe i mean the road is not simply a gravel road that runs through woods uh with you know limestone bluffs on one side uh it 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 meanders it goes up up and down hills there's in places there are swamps on one side and bluffs on the other in other places it's just uh you know uh, covered in forest so it varies quite a bit and uh it's uh you know, in terms of a, a nice place to go, it's it's also just a great place to go and observe nature. And if you're into bird watching, of course, it's also a spectacular place to go. Hey, everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orient Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orient Society today by visiting www.orient.org. So it it is legal to go off of the road field herping but it's just um there are some kind of moral and ethical um considerations you know it's also but it is illegal to to do say again damage habitat is it legal to handle animals um and whether it is or not what are your thoughts on how people should handle that uh, in terms of doing photography or those yeah, two. that's that's a good question. Uh, it is uh, as as the uh, regulations are posted there on the road, and it it's it's quite clear that it is illegal to uh, collect or harass harass wildlife, uh, and that could be uh, that could be construed as you know uh, using a, a hook to uh, to get a cottonmouth and bring it to the road or something like that, or 
make it coil or make a rattle, a timber rattlesnake rattle or something like that. That would constitute harassment. Uh, so that that is that is part of it. Uh, picking up a, a smooth green or a rough green snake on the road, picking picking it up and looking at it. That's sort of a gray area, isn't it? You, um, if you've got some kids along and you're trying to educate them on, uh, you know, on snakes and other animals, and that's an opportunity to uh, to to show them a, a harmless snake. Uh, also, you know, getting a snake across the road so people don't step on it—that's also part. You know, I mean, you know, that's kind of a gray area there. And uh, you know, the people have been ticketed for what I would call egregious harassment of animals, which is, you know, uh, using uh, hooks and sticks and things like that to, you know, get, get the animal to do what you want. Uh, but as far as like moving a snake safely to the side of the road or something like that, I don't, I have not witnessed that. I don't, you know, I think that's probably discretionary on the part of law enforcement and there are law enforcement officers in the area, especially during the migration period. So uh -huh. uh, people have gotten tickets. So people have gotten tickets for th things like, uh, Having a uh, a a Katie did in a uh, in a plastic container, uh, it's it's worth mentioning too because uh, that um, in uh, 2004 they added some uh, additional regulations to the place. Uh, snake hooks and other collecting paraphernalia are uh, forbidden, so you can't have a snake hook, you can't have a snake bag, or any any kind of collecting gear, tongs, anything that that uh, they would consider to be something uh, that might be used for collecting, not just snakes, but any kind of wildlife. Uh, those things are prohibited. So you can't walk in there with any kind of collecting gear, tweezers. No nets, uh, dip plastic. nets of any type, anything no like nets. that would be. No. Uh, so you can bring your walking stick and that's about it. And uh, I, I really didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things it does um, – Back in the day, we there, there was a poaching problem there. People would come in there to and bag up. I can't even conceive of why, but this happened. People would come in there and bag up cottonmouths to to sell. Uh, people would come in there and collect uh, copperheads and timber rattlesnakes. And the populations really were, were kind of suffering there. And and, uh, and box turtles, too. That's another big uh, point of contention. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the box turtles just been picked up and carried away. Uh, so uh, enacting that uh, in 2004, enacting those regulations, what it what it did is it it uh, if you see somebody down there with any kind of collecting paraphernalia, you know they're not a good guy. Uh -huh. uh, you know, lots of herpers have snake hooks and they bring them around. It's sort of the thing we have, right? It's like uh, you know, it's uh, a sheriff wears a star and, and, a, and a, uh, a field herper has a snake hook. Uh, so it just takes all that off the table. Anybody down there with any kind of collecting gear is pretty much going to be a bad guy in, in, in to the, the rest of us in the community. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I and other people, uh, many other people who go there regularly will, if we see somebody with that type of uh, gear, will you know, say something to them. And if they, if they uh, don't respond appropriately, we just call the conservation police. Yeah. And, and uh, these regulations, like you said, are posted on signage at either end of the road. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's quite, quite clear. Um, uh, so are the, in terms of like animals themselves handling harassing, uh, are there, and maybe you don't want to give specifics if it's the case, but maybe you could speak more generally. Are there any particular species there that, you know, happen to be on some state or federal list that kind of supersede that? And there's absolutely, you know, no handling, moving of a stick, just any interaction with. Um, perhaps um, any, any, probably anything on the Illinois uh, what would you call it? the endangered, endangered or threatened species lists? So those would be uh, things like the Mississippi green water snake would be something that, that uh, has is afforded additional protection by the state. I don't think we have any federally listed herps there. Yeah. Um, okay. That that's the one that comes to mind. You know. Yeah. So I guess before and that's a uh, that's one of oh go ahead no no I was go just say that's one of those interesting things about Snake Road too is the fact that. Uh, uh, because it's it's in a unique location where you have um, species that come from 
the west from the Ozark Plateau. You have uh, boreal species from the north, eastern forest species from the, the east, and you have uh, coastal plain species coming up from the south. So you have things like the Mississippi green water snake, uh, which doesn't occur any further north than, than snake roads, uh, uh, kind of a cool snake to see there. And, and of course, the cottonmouth is also, you would also maybe con- consider that uh, one of those southern species as well. So you, you have all these different uh, uh, areas of influence when it comes to herpetofauna. So, yeah, it sounds like a real kind of interesting, like an intersection of biodiversity from just a lot of regions. Sounds like a yes, great, great place. So, uh, how about regulations? Just kind, of, just kind of working through this. I'm sure it's all listed there, but just for the audience who might be thinking of going, um, like in Texas, for example, you need to wear like a reflective vest, you know. And obviously in Shawnee, you know, there are hunting seasons in the fall. Are there any other like regulations like you need to wear an orange vest or anything like that that's worth mentioning no no um there uh, i think there's an overlap with maybe squirrel and deer season um but uh there's there's not a lot of that there's some squirrel hunters that go down in there uh but uh, they generally don't go there <laughs> during this during the snake migration there's so many people uh, during that time period. So the, you know, makes it a little difficult to, you, occasionally I'll see a squirrel hunter down there, uh-huh. uh, during the week. But, uh, for the most part, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, if there's some kind of hunting season going on, you, you might want to wear some reflective clothing, but that's pretty much the case anywhere you go, uh, in the country. But, uh, there's not, nothing like that. Um, no regulations in terms of that. Uh, and, uh, you just want to bring your standard, standard hiking gear, is uh, my recommendation and uh, leave your flip-flops at home. <laughs> um, you've mentioned multiple times people getting tickets or calling a conservation officer if you see something really egregious. Uh, how, uh, you know, given that this is a place that people go to, you know, for wildlife-related recreation, you know, I mean, we were just talking about hunting, you know, on opening day of deer season in most states, game wardens are out and they're focused on particular areas. This seems like the type of thing that law enforcement would be paying more attention to. Um, And and I'm just curious if you can speak to that a bit. Do they end up walking the road? Do they wait at the gates? Are they there frequently? And I'm not, you know, I I don't want to like, I'm not trying to give information to people here who are trying to break the law, but just you know, is there a good law enforcement presence, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Uh, there is, and they're not always wearing smoky bear hats. So uh, yeah, I have I have a, several anecdotes, people walking down the road with somebody that had no idea was was involved in, in uh, you know, protecting, protecting <laughs> the area. Uh, so, you know, they, there's a presence there uh, in uniform and out of uniform. Um they uh, they're on the road. They they uh, rely, also rely on folks like uh, local herpers, such as myself and other people who are you know uh, very protective of the area. And we know we we don't want anybody to screw this up for us uh, for anyone uh, by uh, you know because we all know that we know this could just somebody could just make a decision and say, up, oh, we're done. We're just going to close this off, and y'all can go somewhere else." So we're, we're aware of that. And so we, we participate with that as well. Um, and and there, I, I have seen since this um, hook ban and uh, what I would call an increased level of enforcement, it's not like you're, you're running the gauntlet of people in uniform or anything like that, but they're, they're around and they uh, are available too if, if they need to respond to something. But it's, it's been enough to, I think, reduce uh, drastically reduce the number of knuckleheads who come down here who want to either uh, play with play with the venomous snakes or or take them home. Uh, I think they're they've done a, a spectacular job of that, and I this is one of the the benefits of having been down there for thirty almost thirty years um, every year is that I have seen a difference in. Uh, some of the uh, venomous snake numbers, uh, particularly uh, copperheads and rattlesnakes, this is, of course is my anecdotal uh, evidence, but uh, I, I see more of those of, of copperheads and rattlesnakes uh, than I did back in the 90s. Uh, so I think they've, they've done a good job of 
protecting those animals. And I think those, the populations have responded a bit. And uh, so it's, it used to be kind of a rare thing to see a timber rattlesnake there and down there on the road, but, uh, um, you have a pretty good chance to see him one if you come down. So copperheads as well. Hmm. So. The uh, that's a good segue because you know I'd like to talk a little bit about the animals. You've been mentioning a lot of different species, but um, you know again, you're imagine you're going down on you know say your October trip. Um, you know you've run through a number of the species, so you can run through some of them again. But what, what can people um, expect to see in terms of species, but also you know kind of like proportions are you going to see you know a lot of cottonmouths and seeing a timber rattlesnake is a rare event um and then maybe as you were talking about with the copperheads and the timber rattlesnakes how have any of those patterns changed over the years Hmm. okay well in terms of what you can see obviously the we've mentioned the three what we call the trifecta the copperhead cottonmouth and timber rattlesnake and there's some people who get that uh on a visit they'll get all three uh, cop, cotton mouths are extremely, extremely uh, uh, pop, uh, n- numerous, I should say. They're, they're probably the most, uh, the snake we see the most down there are, are cotton mouths, uh, probably followed by um, western ribbon snakes and maybe uh, rough green snakes. But the, the cotton mouths are just everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, there are people that can see 50, 60, 70 cottonmouths in a single day. Uh, eh, there are days when you don't see that many, but there are people that have done but done that, including myself. Um, but uh, it, it's there are enough of them uh, that you can – it's hard to go down there and not see at least a handful of cottonmouths, even on the, uh, the worst days. Uh, if the sun's out in October, the cottonmouths are going to be moving around. And that includes juvenile cottonmouths too, which a uh, little harder to spot, but there are plenty of those around too, and uh, especially uh, on the road. And uh, I, I should mention this too: this is one of those places where you have to ex- exercise caution because uh, you know little copperheads and little cottonmouths are hard to see in leaf litter, and uh, a number of people, a small number of people, have been uh, bitten by snakes they did not see in the leaf litter there. So you got to be got to be careful. It's it's not a I don't want to, what's the expression? It's not a walk in the woods, even though it's a walk in the woods. Uh, So you have to be careful as you would anywhere because there are plenty of uh, tiny venomous snakes uh, around the place. But you'd also see things like the plain-bellied water snakes uh, and the uh, Mississippi green water snake, which I mentioned before. uh, That's also down there. And uh, there's a few other things that are a little rarer, like uh, mud snakes. That's a, a big find there. We have there are mud snakes uh, in the bottomland swamps. Uh, we don't see them often, but they they do show up now and then, and people and they, get a nice surprise with those. They would not be migrating to the bluffs, though. I would have to think. I don't think so. No, uh, I have not seen any on the road. I've seen them elsewhere on, on uh, uh, close by, uh, but a, a few people have seen them. You know, walking along uh, the edge of the water there. Uh, where the where the road gets close to the water, people have seen them in the, those situations. So they're they're around. Uh, so that's that's a, a big find down there, and a, a you know cause for celebration. Uh, and then we get the you know the king snakes, uh, your your um, common king snake and uh, rat snakes. You know if you want to call them black rat snakes or gray rat snakes, whatever you want to call them, we have those down there too. And garter snakes to go with the ribbon snakes. So there's uh, also some small fossorial species. You know the uh, brown snakes and red bellies and uh earth snakes also as well so probably the rarest snake there is the uh the the uh, flat-headed snake tantilla gracilis which mm. kind of mostly occurs up on the top what we call goat prairies up on the tops of the limestone bluffs but occasionally they they show up on the road too so okay. that's kind of interesting Gotcha. So are a lot of people flipping cover there? I mean, some of those species you mentioned, you'd find under things and you talk about just destroying habitat. I mean, what are kind of the, what are the Uh, ethical protocols around, you know, looking for some of these species that you might be finding under cover? Yeah. Well, obviously you walking along the road, there are uh, rocks and logs uh, along the sides of the road and, uh, they're inevitably they are going to be flipped and rolled. And, you know, I'm always joking about the the logs next to the roll that get 
you know, rolled over, you know, 500 times <laughs> <laughs> over a weekend. So, but occasionally people find stuff under them. And, and so it, it, it's, it's all the, the common sense stuff. Um, again, we're not harassing uh, or wildlife or destroying habitats. So you, you can roll a log, but you better roll that log back. And uh, you don't want to be prying up rocks that uh, uh, can't be replaced. You know, if you want to lift a rock and, you know, that's, that's probably okay. But uh, you, you have to do what good field herpers do everywhere. And that's to uh, not destroy their homes. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, we've been, you know, kind of flirting with the whole conversation, but we've been talking about field herpers and the numbers of people that, that can be there uh, on a given, you know, season. Let, let's talk a little bit about the the people side of it. And so maybe maybe you could start, you know, going back in time and and maybe talk about what it used to be like when there were just the, I think you called it, you know, the f- few nerdy or field herpers in the world uh, to today and what, how is, how has like the weirdos, I, weirdos, I think I use the term yeah. weirdos. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, so how did, um, you know, how has, how has that field herping component at snake road changed over time? That's a, that's a good question. Um, it is uh since the nineties field herping has, uh, f- at first slowly gained popularity. Uh, and then sometime I would say in the early 20 teens just kind of exploded and then COVID put the cherry on the top of all that. Uh, but this is uh, something we've seen across the board. Uh, bird watching is birding has sort of had the same, uh, impact. Uh, people just, uh, decided they need to get outside and interact with the natural world. And, uh, you know, we have people who are into mushrooms and people who are into wildflowers and all that stuff is just an increased phenomenally. Uh, these, uh, a lot of young people who, uh, you know, grew up on their phones, just, I think have just decided that they need some, they need to touch grass as we say. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Um, you know, it used to be, I used to say, you know, back in the nineties, I used to say that, you know, people talk about, you know, how big field herping was. And I, I just roll my eyes and say, you know, we couldn't fill a baseball stadium with, with the, if we had everybody together, we couldn't fill a baseball stadium. Um, now we could field, we could probably feel, uh, fill several baseball stadiums now. Um, uh, there are just a ton of people out there doing this. So that has impacted Snake Road as well because uh, it's a place of pilgrimage. Uh, it, it is also what I call neutral ground. Uh, it's nobody's spot. When you talk about spot burns, it's nobody's spot because it's everybody's spot. You can go there, uh, you know, stick by the rolls, enjoy yourself, and you can learn a lot about herps at a place like Snake Road. If you're new to this, if you've never seen a pit viper before, uh, this is the place to go. It's, you know, a good place to see them. You have this open stage that allows you to observe the animal as it moves, as it crosses the road. You can you know, take pictures of it. Uh, and uh, if you're lucky, it might s- sit there on the road and you can, you know, get a longer look at it. So the, that's what this place affords to a, a burgeoning population of, of new field herpers. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why there are so many people that come down there, uh, typically on the weekends in October, uh, and it, again, the, the uh, we also have people that really aren't field herpers, but want to see the snakes. They want to be, uh, you know, they want to, they want to see what's going on with this because they've read it in a, a, a newspaper article or they've seen a, a puff piece on the local news, you know, as far, you know, maybe in uh, uh, Southern Illinois or, you know, even um, in states surrounding Illinois I'll often do a little pieces about the snake migration. So, so they, you get a lot of the curious that come down there too, that really, maybe they're not into it, but, uh, they, they're, they want to see, they want to, you know, this is something they're interested in seeing, uh, for, you know, whatever reason. And of course you also get sort of a bleed over from people who are just into other forms of nature, like, like birding, 
or uh, just people that like flowers or fungi, that kind of thing. So the, there's a, a, a larger component of those folks that come down to. Okay. So what is the experience like today? So you're going out, let's just call it, say it's a weekend in October. You're pulling up to the, you know, to the parking area. I mean, it's the type of thing where there's 30 vehicles and where you're out on the road, you're just kind of never out of view of a, of a person and, and, you know, a cottonmouth scene and there's kind of a little crowd around it or, or is it less than that? How, how does it, What's the experience like relative to the number of people? On the weekend, it, it's much like that, where you have 30 cars on the Northgate parking lot and maybe 30 cars on the Southgate parking lot. So you have lots of people out there, and uh, they come and go. Uh, they might spend two hours there. They might spend the entire day there. But you're seeing, you're walking there, and, you're, and there are people around you the whole the whole time. Um, that That's the current situation, uh, you know, back in the day wasn't quite so crowded, uh, but you would run into people as you, you always would run into people, but it wouldn't be a constant. It's not like it's a conga line or anything, <laughs> people <laughs> from one end to the other, but you do walk and uh, you, you will see other people. And uh, if they, they uh, you know, somebody has a copperhead that's crawled up on the road and they're taking a picture of it and they uh, you'll see them, you know, down the hill, you know, a couple hundred yards away and you, you know, it's like, Oh, they've got something. Uh, that they're looking at so you can you know kind of trot up there and see what they've seen so that kind of interconnectivity happens uh during the weekends during the week it's a lot uh smaller because people have jobs and uh there's a lot less traffic there but uh, uh you still run into people walking on the road uh if the weather's kind of uh, not good you, you don't see even fewer if it's uh, cloudy and rainy uh you won't see that many people but uh it's just a nice sunny afternoon that's uh, it, you know, no doubt you're going to run into other people there. Um, so in terms of um, is that good or bad, I, I, it, I don't really know. Um, I think it, anytime you get people, and a lot of people bring their kids now too, which is also different. Just don't bring them in flip-flops, folks. Uh, make sure they have good <laughs> good hiking shoes. But uh, but anyway, people bring their kids down there, and I think that's that's good. It's kind of hard to say, wow, uh, to, to be exclusionary. I don't want to be exclusionary to the experience for anyone. Um, I think uh, that, that's important, but it, it, it's not quite the debacle of say Yellowstone, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but it is a popular place and you are, you know, be warned, you're going to run into, uh, lots of folks down there. Do you imagine that someday, you know, a lot of forms of recreation, whether it be kayaking or people going into a national park or, or, whatever it might be, people fishing, like they're regulated, meaning like a certain number of people allowed in a day, a lottery. I mean, do you think you're heading towards that for, um, for certain, you know, time slots, if you will say in October, or do you think you're still a ways from that? I I don't think we're there, but I I do wonder about those things. Um, because, because it's so popular, um, I, I worry about people – I worry about the knuckleheads because it's always the knuckleheads that ruin – whether it's kayaking, fishing, hunting, or field tripping, it's always the knuckleheads who kind of ruin things uh, for other people. So I, I kind of worry about that, and that's one of the reasons we're kind of protective. But I don't, I don't see that uh, in the immediate future. Of course, you know, you can get new people that manage uh, – come in and manage uh, the um, – the property or, uh, you know, new regulations or something. Uh, those are some, you know, inevitable things that we may have to deal with, but, uh, I I don't see that at this, at this time. So. Yeah. You mentioned the knuckleheads. I mean, in in general, is the community pretty good though? I mean, you're not seeing a lot of litter. You're not seeing a lot of rocks torn, you know, rolled off the bluff and laying 50 yards from where they were that type of thing. Or do you end up seeing a lot of that type of activity? Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review.
No, I, I don't see much of that anymore. Uh, it, uh, especially the, the, the littering, um, there's very little littering there. Um, and if there, if there is, it's a lot of, uh, you know, the redneck throwing the beer can from the car stuff, um, before the roads close, it's that kind of stuff, the Mountain Dew bottles or, you know, the potato chip packages. Uh, but at the people that come there, generally people that come down there are, are respectful, uh, in terms of, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you, you still get people who, uh, you know, don't understand you can't tear up the landscape. There's always going to be a few of those people, uh, no matter where you go in the planet, there's always going to be those people who, uh, uh, don't think the the rules apply to them. So, but I think we've you've done a good job of, uh, and the law enforcement has done a good job of, you know, giving those people big fat tickets for uh, for their activities. So that's kind of kept things in line. And a lot of the time, you know, the folks who get out and enjoy the outdoors and enjoy nature, just typically most of them are good about you know packing out their trash and leaving no trace and that sort of thing. Yeah. And are most people that you encounter, do you have kind of good experiences, you know, people are friendly and you chat, or do you end up with a lot of people out there who are, you know, either, you know, unfriendly or actually aggressive towards people, or is it generally a pretty good experience from just human interactions? It's a, it's a good experience. Um, it's one of the things I like, uh, about coming down there is I, I have made, uh, friends and acquaintances, uh, over the years, uh, that, uh, I've met on people that I've met on snake road and that's the only place I see them. I see them every year, you know, like, uh, you know, like the, uh, uh, like Gary Pinson and his family, I, they live in Missouri and uh, they're great folks. And I see them in snake. I know I'm going to see them this year and, uh, look forward to, to hanging out with them a bit. So there's some of that camaraderie that, that happens. I think it's, it's a very friendly place. Um, it's, it's not because it's neutral ground you, you, you just don't get that protective, uh, you know, suspiciousness that people have. Oh, you, you, what are you doing at my spot? Uh, it's nobody's spot and everybody's spot. So that kind of takes away that aspect of it. And if I throw in a little anecdote, I, I had a friend lives out in, uh, out West and, uh, came there for the first time. And, um, I, I thought, well, maybe what, 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 uh, what would, what could he think that would be cool here? I mean, lives out there where there's umpteen rattlesnake species and so on and so forth. But he was, he was having a great time. Uh, but we were walking down a road and we would pass somebody and they'd say, hey, Mike. And I'd say, hey, so-and-so. And, and uh, this went on, I don't know, six or seven times. Hey, good to see you again. And and uh, he finally said, "What what's going on here? <laughs> How, how do you know all these people and how do they, how do they know you? It's like, it's just, these are the same people I see, you know, year after year coming down there. Some of them, uh, started out as uh, small kids and, you know, they're, they're kind of grown up now, which is kind of weird for me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's just kind of a, uh, a fall ritual, if you will. The snakes start heading towards the the uh, bluffs and the field herpers start heading towards the snake road. Okay. Last question. So snake road being, you know, everybody's and nobody's and, and being a neutral place and, and being a place that attracts people. Um, do you think it's had any impacts on the surrounding areas. Obviously that region must have a lot of bluffs and other things. I mean, do you think it's put more pressure in other areas in that region that uh, you maybe don't have the same level of law enforcement regulation and so on? Um, that is a good question and I don't know, but I, I imagine uh, if you're if you're one of those uh, folks that need to sneak around and uh, and uh, uh, if you're a poacher or you're otherwise uh, you know dealing with uh, uh, harassing wildlife, I think that's probably true. Um, but I, I don't have any I don't have any anecdotal evidence of that. Uh, it is certainly the easiest place to see herbs. Uh -huh. I mean, there are other places you can obviously go down there, and it's all you know 
I'm thinking of a couple other areas that are just as snaky, but are really hard to get to mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, walking for an hour, that kind of thing, just to get there. So, but I don't have real, any real evidence, but I, I would assume so, given what I know about, uh, the, you know, being on this planet for 65 years and being uh, familiar with uh, the knucklehead element. Hmm. Well, let's hope that's not the case. But last question, sorry, and, and then we will move on to a couple other just short conversations yeah. before we wrap up. But um, so are most people, you know, camping? Are there campsites near there? Ah. Are most people staying in motels in the university town or, or some other place there? Yeah. Or, you know, h- how are people, you know, you know, kind of what are the logistics of this type of trip for, for people from that's, far? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the nearest big town is Carbondale, which is, has a university, so it has a number of motels. And it's uh, 25 miles north. Uh, there's uh, Anna Jonesboro, a smaller community that has a couple of hotel or motels uh, also available. Um, so people tend to stay there. People who aren't equipped to go camping usually stay in there. If they're flying in, that's a uh, a good option for people. Uh, but lots of people come there and camp out. Uh, and that is another element of, of this uh, whole experience for field harpers is that the camping out. Uh, there's uh, We have a campground uh, right on the edge of the forest called the Pine Hills Campground. And uh, it generally fills up with uh, field harpers during the weekends in October. Uh, so that, that's a lot of fun. You go down there and, and camp out and we, there's a place where you can have a big fire, like a community, uh, like a community fire pit there. You can have a big fire and, and sit around with 20 and 30 uh, or 20 or 30 of your closest uh, field herping friends that you just met for the first time and uh, get to know each other. And uh, it, it's October. So uh, at night, there's there's not much to do after the sun goes down, the temperature stops dropping into the, you know, into the low fifties and the, or the forties or even the thirties at night. So you, you go and you have a nice meal and you hang out with your friends and you sit around the fire. And in the morning, you don't have to get up at the uh, crack of dawn because the sun doesn't come up over the bluffs until about 10 o'clock or so. So um, there's, there's not much snake activity early in the morning. So you have plenty of time to have a nice you can cook a big breakfast and uh, again hang out with your your fellow herpers and so that that is uh, part of the experience and I some of my friends that have come to the road from elsewhere for the first time have just been amazed by I would say the camaraderie of that it's just something you don't get to do elsewhere uh, where you get to hang out with people you've never met uh, but you know they're they're weirdos like you and uh, you, you can hang out and make new friends and uh, maybe have some pancakes. Yeah, snake camp. Not much different than like yeah. fishing yeah. camp or one of those. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. It, it, exactly. It, it sort of we, we've taken field herping and put it into, into that other – into those mil- milieus like the, the, the fishing camps or the hunting camps. It's, it's, it's the same sort of thing down there. Yeah, stand around a fire at night and tell the story about the timber rattlesnake you saw and what it was doing. And yeah, that just yeah. sounds great. Well, we, we, have this, uh, we have this ritual, and uh, I can't remember who started it. It might have been my friend Justin Michaels. But we, uh, for years, if whoever's around the fire, we'll, we, uh, we get a, what we call a talking stick, and it gets passed around to everybody. <laughs> and we make everybody tell us, their name and where they're from and then, you know, if they're first time here, you know, that kind of thing. It just gives people an opportunity to get to know each other and uh, sort of build some, you know, build more uh, relationships and friendships along the way. So I really like that part too. Yeah. I love it. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. So um, I, I just go down there nowadays to hang out. I mean, it, I go down there. You're like camp people cook. Come from other <laughs> you're like camp yeah, cook, yeah, get yeah, everything you know, people, ready. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I had you know, people like, oh, I'm coming, you know, for the first time from y- you name it, uh, out west or they've never been to Snake Row before. Uh, I'm there. I'm coming down. We're going to hang out. And uh, that, that to me is right now the, the best part. I still enjoy seeing uh, uh, all the herp and the fauna, don't get me wrong, but just to go down and hang out with uh, people I know and people that I haven't known, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get to know them. So that to me, that's great too. Yeah. So that's, that's also part of the 
putting together uh, a field herping community and making it a little tighter. I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your international journeys, but maybe we'll do that next time we have you on the podcast because uh, you know we're <laughs> running up on an hour here. But I do want to just take a couple minutes uh, before we wrap up and um, have you talk a little bit about your podcast. So um, yeah, just maybe tell people who may not have heard of it, you know what the podcast is and just a little bit about it and how they can find it. Oh, sure. Uh, the name is uh, So Much Pingle Herp- Herpetology Podcast. And why is it called So Much Pingle? It, that is uh, kind of in my handle on the social media platforms. So Much Pingle at Twitter, So Much Pingle on Instagram, so on and so forth. And uh, when I was casting around for a name for the show, uh, my uh, good friend Brian Hughes said, you know, you already have a brand, dude. Just, you know, you're, you're already so much Pingle, so use that name. So I, I, I have, and so that's why it has this unusual name. Uh, and um, I've been doing this uh, since, uh, oh, pretty much the start of the pandemic, which uh, <laughs> was, uh, in retrospect, was kind of a, a difficult thing because I ended up recording like 30 shows from uh, my basement from the top of my washing machine because I didn't have a recording studio. Uh, since my wife was working from home unexpectedly. But anyway, uh, I like uh, to talk about all aspects of uh, herpetology on the show, um, ex- except uh, the, the captive bred stuff. I'm not really into the captive bred community or anything like that. So anything that's involved with herpetology, I like to get guests on. Uh, I like to get field herpers on and talk about trips. I like to get uh, scientists on. And talk about research. Uh, I have a segment that I do on a semi-regular basis with uh, doctor, my friend, Dr. Alex Crone. We call it Herp Science Sunday. We get on there and talk about some interesting uh, scientific publications that uh, um, break them down and try to, uh, you know, just discuss those. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. I, it, I just uh, I don't have a, a theme other than it's anything involved with herpetology. Well, I would encourage all of our listeners to go check it out if you have not. I'm assuming people can find it anywhere they digest podcasts, Apple, Spotify, all the above. So Anywhere podcasts are sold. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mike, as you know, because you've already told one, I like to have all of my guests tell me their best snake story. So I want you to imagine that you're standing around that fire in the, uh, you know, in the campground outside of Snake Road, and you're going to tell us one of your best Snake Road stories. Oh. Oh, boy. Okay. You may have to edit the pause, the um, the blank space out here. Really. <laughs> oh, I, I, I surprised it. you with that one, so no, no problem. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of forgot about your 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 uh, your your little thing here, but uh, I should have been better <laughs> prepared. Um, let's. Oh, I, I know one, and I've talked about this. Uh, I mentioned this on another uh, pot, uh, episode recently, but. Uh, one of the most unusual things, and I always kind of break down how uh, it's incidents in the field that sort of ele- elevate my understanding of herbs. So something peculiar happens and it makes me think about how how these things uh, – it makes me think more about herpetofauna in general and how they uh, live and how they operate. But I was down a snake road. This is going back uh, – oh, gosh, back in the aughts. And uh, I, I went down there to uh, herp with uh, some friends of mine that w- from Iowa um, who uh, hadn't been there. And we, we were walking along the uh, base of the bluff and we hear some rustling up on uh, above us, somewhere up in the rocks above us. It's like leaves, you know. And all of a sudden, this, this cottonmouth comes sailing over the side of the bluff and the drops, maybe, maybe 20, 25 feet drops plop right in front of, right in a leaf litter. And, um, I thought, okay, is that, is that snake? All right. It did it, did it fall? And, uh, I think, and the snake seemed to be okay. And I don't know if it was, uh, I don't really know, um, 
what the effect is of a 20 foot fall on a snake that, you know, weighs uh, a couple pounds. But, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, we went up to it and it, it did the typical cotton mouth thing. And then it, uh, crawled off and went, it went into the swamp. And, uh, I got to thinking about that because, uh, uh, I had, I had a, if, if that snake fell off the bluff, that would be one thing, but, uh, there's also the possibility that the snake just doesn't bother with the slow, sinuous crawl down from its den. It just gets to a point where uh, it can jump. And maybe that's what happened. Maybe the snake just sort of launched itself to, to get to the bottom quickly. I'm, I'm not sure about that. We still, My friends and I still debate this on what exactly was going on there. But it was, I have to say, that it was probably the most unusual thing that I've had happen there is this snake sailing out of the blue sky and plopping down in front of us. Fascinating. There's, you're How's seeing that? a glimpse into the early evolution of some of the Asian flying snakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said too. It's like you come come back to Snake Road, and you know, five thousand years, we're going to have flying cottonmouths. Uh, uh, so yeah, that one that one always gets me. Yeah, so, no, that's interesting. I've spent a, a lot source of, of endless speculation. I spent a lot of time with vipers, uh, more so timber rattlesnakes, but uh, in real mountainous habitat, and I've never seen one kind of come off of any feature. So that's, that is a great observation. Well, I, I, uh, appreciate you coming on and, uh, really appreciate talking about this particular place. Um, it just sounds like a, a really special place and, and a place that's important for, uh, you know, educating people about snakes and, uh, you know, I'm glad it exists and I'm glad someone like you who, who spent so much time there uh, exists to talk about it. So thanks again. Well, thank you. And I, I just wanted to say thank you to the U.S. Forest Service and the uh, Illinois DNR and Illinois Natural History Survey and all of those folks who have worked to uh, keep that place uh, a good place to go and open and accessible to the public. I can't uh, express my appreciation for that enough. Great. And I wanted to uh, thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild. <laughs>